My name is Toby Dodge and I teach international relations in this august uh, building, but for tonight's uh, session, more importantly, I labour under the august title of Interim Director of the Middle East Centre here at, at London School of Economics. Now, as we all know, uh, three years ago, Mohammed, on the 17th of December, Mohammed Bouzazi uh, committed suicide in frustration and despair, or set himself on fire, that led to his death, and from then there was a series of regional transition, uh, uh, transitions which led to uh, Ben Ali fleeing Tunisia, Mubarak uh, leaving power in Egypt, uh, President Saleh in, in Yemen uh, leaving power, though he's still hanging about, um, then an uprising in Bahrain which was violently suppressed, and then uh, Colonel Gaddafi being killed in Libya. Now, I, as we've all, as Middle East scholars, Middle East people interested in the Middle East, rushed to keep up with events. I think things are now at least a little clearer. And so we decided at the Middle East Centre to uh, bring together the, ex the best experts we could lay our hands on um, in London to kind of assess, which we call it the Arab uprisings, the Arab Spring, certainly not the Arab awakening, um, three years down the line. Now, I'll do it in reverse order. Uh, Madawi al-Rashid was for many years a professor of anthropology of religion at King's College, but to LSE's great benefit, she is now uh, the visiting profe uh, professor of, uh, at the Middle East Centre here at London School of Economics. She is, I think, without doubt, without peer, uh, a world expert on Saudi Arabia. Um, she's just about to publish a book, uh, Most Masculine State, Gender, Politics and Religion in Saudi Arabia. And I think she's def uh, published a definitive history of Saudi Arabia with Cambridge University uh, Press. So, and she will speak last. And the justification for that is that not much has happened in Saudi Arabia, but she's going to explain why. Um, before that, we have Ewan Stein, who uh, got his PhD from London School of Economics, so we're all linked here. Uh, Ewan is uh, a lecturer in the School of uh, Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh, and his book, Representing Israel in Modern Egypt, uh, was published by IB Taurus last year, and he will speak quite centrally on Egypt, and we're very excited to tempt him down from Scotland to come and speak. And first, John Chalkoft, our resident expert on all things revolutionary in Middle East at London School of Economics, uh, teaches um, in the government department here at LSE, and is, uh, and is um, uh, the author of two books, The Invisible Cage, Syrian Migrant Workers in Lebanon, and Striking Cabbies of Cairo and Other Stories, my favourite book, Crafts and Guilds in Egypt. So John will go first for about 15 minutes until I start looking grumpy, and if he's still talking 20 in 20 minutes, I should shout at him. Um, and then we'll move on in that order, hopefully not with me shouting um, after that. So John, do you want to start? Yes, All right. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Toby. Uh, it's very good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming. So I have quite a telegraphic uh, presentation, not too many whistles and bells, not too many pictures. I just wanted to lay out an argument in uh, 15 minutes or less, which is, which is not that, you know, so it'll have to be quite telegraphic, uh, but let's see where it goes. It's called Unruly Politics and Transformative Mobilization in the Arab Uprisings. Uh, in 2010 to the present, just to the present, really, it's, uh, it's a discussion of the uprisings themselves. And I wanted to address this question, how do we explain these uprisings? 
And there's a book that's recently come out, Gilbert Ashkar. It's called The People Want. It's a terribly erudite, important, significant contribution. It does it. He explains the uprisings as a kind of a social explosion that results from uh, a block development, a social and economic crisis, a contradiction between the relations and means of production that ends <coughs> in a social explosion, which we could have predicted. Uh, there's another book that's just come out. It's called Networks of Outrage and Hope by Manuel Castells. Uh, and he, you know, not a regional expert, but he links uh, the uprisings to uh, globalization, the development of new autonomous forms, networks, forms of social media, communications, which create spaces autonomous from the state, which then form the basis for mobilization uh, uh, and, and, and the extension of that mobilization. And he's put, he makes that central to the Arab uprisings and other forms of contentious phenomena in the last uh, few decades. Then, I, uh, Charles Kurzman has this very provocative idea that you simply cannot explain contentious phenomena because any kind of explanation inevitably involves retroactive prediction which can only be validated with hindsight and any given set of starting conditions in fact might lead to unpredictable phenomena. He's written a book called The Unpredictable Revolution about Iran uh, The Unthinkable Revolution, sorry, in Iran. It's very compelling, very interesting a complete rejection of structuralist forms of explanation and he, he has a, an article on the, on the Arab Spring sort of going over how uh, so many people thought they were predicting it but in fact people have been predicting it since the 1980s and it still hasn't happened and so on. My argument here is that uh, a crisis of authority linked to new sites of exchange and above all uh, plus new forms of unruly politics and transformative mobilization uh, can form part of a, a, an explanatory account. So the idea is just to lay that out uh, and see where it goes. And the idea of a crisis of authority, which comes from Antonio Gramsci, but it's the idea of that in the Gumlukiet, this the idea of the Republico monarchies, the formerly revolutionary republics, which became dynastic and which became involved in the succession, presidents for life, trying to pass on the presidency to their sons. I'm especially talking about Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, and Syria were becoming dynastic. Uh, a piece of this crisis of authority. Second, these are, are states that from formally articulating strong kinds of national liberation uh, uh, in contradiction to you know, forms of imperialism, neo-colonialism, had moved into a more clientelist position vis-a-vis -vis the United States. They'd shifted from a socialist and statist developmentalism to you know, severing this old social pact where social rights were exchanged for political rights and they'd become deeply corrupt, riddled with economic crises. And amidst all this, the, the, the panacea of uh, political liberalization and the neoliberalization, which was to lead to prosperity, uh, never came into being in those gumlukiet uh, and uh, the promises of that order uh, never materialized. And, 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 and I, I, I'm arguing here telegraphically that this, there, there, there is a crisis of authority in, the, in those Gumlukiyad, and it erodes the spontaneous consent given by the great masses of the population to the general direction imposed on social life by the dominant fundamental group. That's a formula from Antonio Gramsci. It leads to a situation of domination without hegemony. What it does is it makes unhegemonized subjects available for new forms of mobilization. 
The other piece of this, the other structural piece of this, is the idea that you do have new sites of communication, new forms of social exchange in the region, especially since the 1990s, and that's especially in the media. So the role of these new media break the old monopoly that was held over communication by the states of the region. Uh, and especially we're talking about satellite TV, Al Jazeera, the new independent press, uh, the use of mobile phones, especially how direct mobile phone footage could then be uploaded straight to satellites and then it could convey uh, uh, abuses and, uh, and, and, and other things to a mass audience. I mean, Al Jazeera, we're talking about an audience of 30 million plus. It played this uh, tremendously important role uh, during the uprisings, as well as other forms of social media that create network connections that matter. And I think there's, there's also a new sociology. There's a kind of an undefeated generation, if you will, especially in Egypt. If you look at a lot of the, some of the, the primary activists among the educated youth, they're often sons and daughters of those uh, left. I mean, Marie Duboc has an interesting article on the demobilization of the older uh, Nasserist left in Egypt. But it's, and it wasn't then, this... Uh, this generation that had lost the battles of the 70s and 80s that got involved in mobilization, it was their sons and daughters, a new generation often born in the 1980s, who actually had been undefeated. They hadn't actually been tested politically. But these new forms of exchange, they make available new sites of exchange and new networks, among which mobilization can happen. So in my view, the crisis of authority make unhegemonized subjects available for new forms of mobilization, and new sites of exchange uh, appear in which mobilization can happen. But this kind of structuralism is not enough. And I suppose this is my main, this is the thing that makes me more excited. Because these, first of all, because these great vectors of structural change, on the one side, the the crises of authority in the Gumlukiyad and the new sites of communication, First of all, they're not purely structural phenomena. They're partly the result of different kinds of agency, including unruly politics, which I'll get to. But second, these structures, more importantly, they don't determine the occurrence, the content, or the success of unruly political mobilization. So re its occurrence, the the forms of protest we saw in the Arab uprisings go well beyond the Gumlukiyet. We saw them in Bahrain. We saw protests in Morocco. And it didn't happen in the same way in all of them. In Algeria, a lot of the protests remained based around social and economic issues. They never took on the regime in the way they did in Tunisia, Egypt, and elsewhere. Second, if you simply go by the statistics on internet usage, you'd find fewer protests in the UAE, which has a higher internet penetration, than somewhere like Yemen, which has a lower internet penetration. So again, the structuralist explanation doesn't quite hold up. Regarding the content of protest, even in amid a crisis of authority and even amid uh, new sites of autonomous exchange, very many different kinds of protest are possible. I mean, Islamists had long been decrying the failure of the secularist regimes. Al-Qaeda used the internet. So that's not gonna, it's not enough to think of how we can explain the content of those protests in terms of those prior forms of structuralism and regarding their success. I mean, very different outcomes if you compare, say, a Tunisia with a Syria, even though lots of other conditions are similar and even though the protests begin in rural uh, provincial areas and then spread. 
So structuralism isn't enough if we're going to try and explain these uprisings. And I say we have to think in terms of unruly politics. I think it requires an analysis of the creative and socially constructionist form of political mobilization itself. And that politics is not pre-given in the structure. It's, it's not an imminent emanation of some teleological or structural set of contradictions. It's not epiphenomenal, it's causal, and it involves praxis, which is an idea that comes from Marx's thesis on Feuerbach, and it's something where uh, you have action which is shaped by circumstances, but it also shapes those circumstances. But what is unruly politics? It's politics against existing norms, practices, and uh, 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 um, uh, of existing formal and informal politics. It's politics that involves new forms of association and exchange. It's politics that brings in new frames uh, for collective action, such as new kinds of identity, new kinds of principles guiding action, new repertoires of contention, so new modes of organization, new strategies, new tactics, and it posits new goals for contention, and it involves redefinitions of material interest. And the, 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 and one of the features of this kind of unruly politics is that it's voracious in its modular appropriation, meaning appropriation of models for collective action from elsewhere, and it's potent in its demonstration effects to other kinds of uh, political actors. And just, so just to give some examples of how this worked in Egypt, in, during the 18 days, especially in Egypt, you had the usurpation of the existing elements in the formal and uh, informal politics. So you had a new kinds of political action that usurped the older political parties, the trade unions, and even, and, and even the, the, you know, the youth in the Muslim Brotherhood uh, are pushing the Muslim Brotherhood into directions it didn't necessarily want to go. You also have the usurpation of the older style of quiet encroachment of the ordinary, the kind of uh, survivalist, informal network politics that we get described in Asaf Bayat. That kind of politics isn't the same thing as overt, rambunctious collective action that takes on the regime in an overt kind of way. You get other, in, in the creative appropriation of Facebook, you see another, you see new kinds, new lines of association and exchange being developed because Facebook is being used for all sorts of things leisure, gossip, consumption, uh, uh, dating, etc. But it gets appropriated very creatively by people to expose the human rights abuses of the regime. Uh, and that's a, that, that creates new forms of communication and exchange. It's not just an inert, it's not pre-given in Facebook, far from it, that it will be used for this kind of activity. But it gets appropriated for that activity, especially starting around 2009 in a place like Egypt. Then in terms of new frames, new identities, uh, and new principles guiding action, you get these, some of these, the, the idea of a sha'ab yurid, asqat, and azam, it's quite, uh, it's, of course it's in, it's something, a formula, you know, it comes from the Tunisian national anthem, it gets appropriated, but, it's, uh, but, th but this phrase hasn't been heard before uh, in the Arab world. Nor, and, and, and also, 
I mean, if you think of the hegemony of forms of Islamist mobilization as late as the mid-2000s, I mean, if you read Francois Bergert, there's a consensus, uh, but there are new uh, principles and identities that incorporated in this idea of bread, dignity, and freedom. And this idea of direct democracy, that you especially get framing action in a place like in the mini-city of Tahrir during the 18 days, is a dramatically new kind of frame. I was also exercised by the idea that, you know, remember that there were other self-immolations before Mohammed Bouazizi on the 17th of December. There were others that, you know, didn't trigger anything. But suddenly, within these uprisings, for some reason, there's a new political subject at work, and it's that these survivalist, survivalist workers and the urban poor who've not starred in any political dramas in the modern Middle East and North Africa for a very long time... Suddenly, uh, uh, Mohammed Bouazizi, who, you know, the petty vendor oppressed by corrupt police uh, and an indifferent regime, is suddenly the subject of an uprising in a way which uh, brings new... I mean, I I think it must be part of the explanation for why the urban poor can can mobilise all of a sudden. But you also have these new repertoires which simply weren't there before. The idea of occupying space... The, you know, especially space controlled, but like, um, in, you know, for, in the different squares, uh, especially Tahrir, but it, it, it appears all around the region, uh, Pearl Roundabout in Bahrain, and occupying it, holding on to it, and thereby performing a defeat of the regime's capacity to control that space. That's, that, that's a, a part of a repertoire of contention that didn't exist uh, and in fact, it's very powerful in its demonstration effect. The, the second one that I, I emphasize is the street battles with the police. The idea that you can actually uh, defeat the riot police in a street battle. That idea, as far as I know, didn't exist in Egypt, uh, uh, except you know, among certain sections of the football fans and a few other groups. And, and you know, Salwa Ismail is documented, you know, scuffling between uh, the, 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 the youth of Bula'a de Krur and the police and so on in the early 2000s. But this idea you could actually de- defeat them in a battle, it's new. Anyway, there are other things. But I wanted to speak just, wh- just one second before going to the conclusion on uh, demonstration and appropriation. Because the, I said that uh, unruly politics, it has... Uh, powerful demonstration effects and it is a voracious appropriator uh, of models and, and this idea you know, the moment that the army refuses to shoot in Tunisia is, is first of all it's a powerful demonstration effect of what protests can achieve something which people didn't necessarily expect or imagine could happen and it's not pre-given in the structure uh, but then it's very you know, it's modular and it's appropriated the idea, aha a mass protest in Egypt might win the neutrality of the army. It has a demonstration effect. And, and even, even the occupation of Tahrir, it, the demonstration effect, as I understand it, came from Suez. Because in Suez, there was all sorts of unruly action which was taking on the security forces. And people who were in Tahrir said, well, we can do that too. And so it led into an occupation. And, and of course, there's lots of other examples of demonstration and appropriation that are a part of this unruly politics and that can help explain how you get this quite rapid scale shift and, and things start happening that weren't necessarily predicted in advance. So, 
so what does this mean? Just to say something uh, before wrapping up more analytically. What the, the idea is that none of these... You've got two minutes. That's, that's, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> none of these uh, unruly and creative forms are inherent in either the crisis of authority or in the globalization of the media scape. Uh, however, or political subjects had been unhegemonized in the crisis of authority and new means of coordination were available thanks to new media scapes, etc. But the content, occurrence and relative success of protests had much to do with unruly politics and forms of transformative mobilization, the creation of new identities, interests and subjects in the practice of mobilization itself. But the next point to add is that to do away with the way power exchange and the existing political system form a context for unruly politics uh, is to overstate the potency of social constructionism. I think it must be located within these larger structural questions, which I've read as in terms of a crisis of authority and in terms of a, uh, a new kinds of sites of exchange and communication and socialization. So to conclude this very sort of uh, overheated kind of telegraphic exposition, it's uh, that the, the, uh, the argument is the Arab uprisings must be situated within their, these structural and historical contexts against the anti-explanation of someone like, uh, you know, it's brilliant, it's very compelling and interesting work by Kurzman, <clears throat> but it goes too far in terms of eviscerating the context and the historical situation. But... The Arab uprisings demonstrate the importance of creative and unruly politics against the structural determinism of this, these other very erudite works, you know, by Gilbert Ashkar and by Manuel Castells. And so perhaps just to say that the idea that political praxis itself can bring into being new horizons of the possible, which I think is what happened in the Arab world in between 2010 and 2011, is... is uh, you know, it's interesting because it, it, it turns it into a factor that has to be taken seriously, not just an epiphenomena, but a, a causal factor in our understandings of protest, mobilisation, counter-revolution and everything else. Thank Excellent. You. Thank you very much. Right, Ewan, tell us what's happening in Egypt <clears throat> and what's going to happen in the future. What's going to happen? Thank you very much, uh, Toby, for inviting me. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Egypt, and I, I suppose my presentation might be a little bit more concrete, but it, it's also going to be quite schematic. Um, I think I was asked to talk about how the uprisings have transformed Egypt. Uh, so that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of what I'm going to try and do, um, although the quick answer, I think, is, is not very much. Um, but I, I, I agree with, with what uh, John said about trying to avoid the sort of ex post facto rationalization and prediction. Um, but in any case, I'll, I'll try and give sort of my reading of what's happened in Egypt over the last three years um, with a particular focus on, on activism uh, and change. Um, and I think there's three main themes that I, that I want to touch on in this discussion. The first is that I think the police state in Egypt... Uh, such as it is, is stronger now uh, than it was before the uprising. Um, and I think uh, an important sort of factor in this 
is the lack of a strong connection or integration between political uh, activism, between act activism on the, on the ground and the political class in general. Um, and I think this, combined with the lack of uh, sustained international pressure, uh, will be sort of one of the key impediments to challenging this police state. Um, and then also <clears throat> sort of looking at uh, how to explain this lack of integration, this lack of connectivity between activists uh, and the political class, I think we need to look at how the political parties were formed, how they were constituted under previous regimes, and also the strategy of the Muslim Brotherhood as it evolved under Mubarak. Um, in terms of the current situation, um, there have been hundreds killed in protests in Egypt. Uh, the, the proposed constitution will still allow for military trials for civilians. Um, protests are increasingly suppressed uh, uh, harshly on a routine basis, um, and legal cover is provided by a new protest law. Uh, so I, I think it's um, fair to say that Egypt is a police state. Um, it was shaken by the January Revolution, the January 25th, 2011 revolution, but it recovered and it remains a police state. Um, rule by the military is not an alternative to this, um, despite the fact that the military played this role in overthrowing Mubarak, um, which can't be ignored, it's, it's, its role alongside the mass uprising. Um, but the military, military rule is a key dimension of this uh, police state. Um, following the ouster of Mohamed Morsi, who was the president until July, <clears throat> and then the routing of the Muslim Brotherhood, the brutal suppression of pro-Morsi, and then any protests, um, the security forces, the riot police, grouped under the Minister of, Ministry of Interior, have returned as a target for uh, political activism in Egypt. And there are signs... Um, that the Alliance to Support Legitimacy, the National Alliance to Support Legitimacy, which is the sort of grouping of pro-Morsi Islamist forces, and other protest movements, particularly groupings amongst the students, are drawing closer together to protest the coup and the police state. Um, so I think this is sort of an interesting and fairly recent development. And it's important not to forget that one of the main initial drivers of the uprising of the 25th of January which was held on police day, was to confront the police uh, and the behavior of the police and the impunity of the police and the police state. Um, at the time, those demands which were to oust Mubarak and his cabal, which included networks uh, within the Ministry of Interior, chimed quite well with the aspirations of the military command um, to boost its own standing within the regime. Um, but this is a key difference, I think, between 2011 and today, where the army and the police are, to quote uh, Abdel Fattah Hassisi, Eid Wahida, they're one hand. Um, there's much less division between these two parts of the regime at the moment. The security apparatus was, as John has mentioned, badly shaken by the initial uprising, was defeated in um, certain aspects, but it did manage to regroup managed to regain its confidence, and managed to draw progressively closer to the military, to the generals. And essentially, you have a closing of ranks in order to protect the regime. Um, clashes between the police and the protesters continued long after the fall of Mubarak, um, culminating, I think, in the atrocities of the Battle of Mohammed Mahmoud Street 
in November 2011, where over 40 Egyptians lost their lives. Um, so I'll move on to my second theme, which I think is the, the limits of activism in the sense that there's, there's been a, a weak connection between street activism and formal political activity. So as these protests against SCAF, uh, Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, and the governments appointed by SCAF continued through 2011, up to Mohammed Mahmoud Street, much of the political class, including the Islamist and non-Islamist parts of that, turned a blind eye to what was going on in the street, focusing on electioneering uh, and general politicking. Um, and you had this sort of process of collusion between the Muslim Brotherhood and the military to essentially dampen the capacity of activism to bring about change. Uh, a similar dynamic going on with the Salafi movement, which was politically resurgent after the revolution. All these forces eager to proclaim that the revolution was a done deal, the revolution was over, people could get off the streets uh, and return to some sort of normality in which they would have a political stake, those parties, not the people. Um, and I think the new political parties that were formed, much like those that already existed, were not so much structures for inclusion, representation, channeling of the demands of the revolution, as they were vehicles for the political class as a whole uh, to access the fruits of power, the fruits of political power, and largely ignoring what was going on uh, at the activist level. Um, SCAF, for its part, uh, needed somebody to step in to restore the prestige of the military, to shield it from criticism so that it could return to ruling from behind, uh, remaining above the fray, Islamists were best placed to fulfill this function initially. Um, as such, SCAF was happy to accept calls for early elections, and the Muslim Brotherhood was happy with a constitution that kept the military's prerogatives intact. So as I'm sure you, you remember, the, the, the Islamists as a whole, the Brotherhood, uh, their Freedom and Justice Party, and the Noor Party, which is the main Salafi party, uh, swept the board in the elections at the end of 2011, while the activists, and this includes Islamist activists as well as non-Islamist activists, struggled to find parliamentary representation or to be heard at the political level. Um, the Brotherhood, I think, couldn't or wouldn't build support um, or bases of cooperation amongst activists or within the political class as a whole. And I think despite or perhaps because of the fact that this political class had similar objectives, namely to um, insert itself to gain some access to the, to the political pie, it remained polarized, antagonistic, fragmented. The Brotherhood, for its part, was trying to dispel the perception that was widespread amongst both, amongst, um, both amongst the political class as a whole and activists that had only wanted power um, by pledging not to field a candidate in the presidential elections. Um, and trying to reassure everyone that it was keen to be one amongst many players in, in the political game. It didn't want to dominate. Um, but the Brotherhood was playing what um, Mona Al-Ghobashi, who wrote, wrote a very uh, influential article about the Muslim Brotherhood of the 2005, was playing the regime game. So it has two games, the Muslim Brotherhood, the regime game and the electoral game. The regime game involves cajoling, reassuring, maneuvering with the regime in order to gain um, legitimacy, security, and some sort of uh, advantages within the existing political system. 
as opposed to the electoral game where it tries to increase and broaden its support base in society. The Brotherhood at this stage was very much playing the regime game. As a result, it lost a lot of broader, what, what broader societal support it had. Uh, and as we now know looking back, uh, this strategy didn't work. So if the generals, um, we don't know, they may have been agnostic or happy to see a quiescent um, brotherhood, a dependent brotherhood in power, as long as its privileges were intact. The Ministry of the Interior, much of the judiciary, much of the media, large sections of the non-Islamist political class, and the main Salafi formation, as represented by the Noor Party, were staunchly opposed to this coming to pass, to the Brotherhood becoming uh, essentially a new National Democratic Party, a new part of the state bureaucracy. This was not going to be acceptable. Um, there was an article uh, in Reuters a couple of days ago that laid out very interestingly the role of the Interior Ministry in the protests that led to the ouster of Mohamed Morsi, which I'd suggest people read. Um, then, sort of moving on, in the wake of these elections, having said they weren't going to field presidential candidate. They were faced with the threat of Parliament's dissolution. They were not allowed to form a government. And the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood calculated that they would either have to field a candidate for the presidency or lose everything. So reconnecting this with activism, um, the presidential campaign running through first half 2012 did renew hopes that activism might lead to some sort of political change. Ostensibly revolutionary candidates, um, Abdul Minim Abul Futuh and Hamdin Sabahi, uh, gained almost 40% of the vote in the first round. And Morsi scraped through in the second round only because he was facing off with the SCAF's chosen candidate, Ahmed Shafiq, um, who, despite his associations with Mubarak, nevertheless attracted almost half of the vote. During the year of Morsi's presidency, the Brotherhood played a role um, which many would say was intended for it uh, as a conducting rod for popular resentment. Protests turned against the Brotherhood. The beginning of the end arguably came with Morsi's so-called power grab in November 2012 when he sought to gain more effective, more tangible uh, political power in the face of hostile judiciary, obstructionist political class. Uh, and from that point on, the, the protests against Morsi, against the Muslim Brotherhood, intensified. In December of that year, the police refused to defend the Ittihadiyya Palace as it was assailed by protesters. The Brotherhood brought in its own militias, uh, which by all accounts behaved viciously. Uh, and Morsi is now uh, appropriately, if extremely hypocritically, facing charges on this. Turning to the Islamist activists. So the Brotherhood and the Islamist movement in general is a grassroots movement. Suffered greatly at the hands of the Egyptian police over the years. One of the elements of its of its claims to legitimacy was the fact that it suffered so much from persecution, from suppression. 
But even at the grassroots level, it was not really challenging the police state. It was not really challenging the security state. Um, Morsi and the broader Islamist community talked the talk of being in power, even if in reality they weren't. Their, their hold on power was very tenuous. And the rank and file of the grassroots of the Islamist movement broadly accepted this, helped by the fact that the police over this time um, were largely taking a back seat. People complained of a security vacuum, of not enough security. So there was less in terms of um, police oppression to protest against. Islamist activism, for its part, was diverted into foreign affairs and sectarian issues, the issue of Palestine, obviously, and also Syria, as well as protests over that film that was made. That, I don't know if you remember that, protest, the innocence of Muslims. You, you had uh, the besieging of the American embassy, obviously the assassination of the ambassador in Libya. Um, and then more broad sort of agitation for Morsi to, to get a move on, to hurry up and implement Sharia as the panacea, as the solution to everything, to all of life's problems. Um, and you also had the largest of the Salafi formations, Hezbanur, which is the political front of the uh, Dawa Salafiya, mm-hmm. Alexandria-based extensive move, Salafi movement, was a fair-weather friend for the Muslim Brotherhood at, at best. I mean, don't forget, these groups had been bitter enemies up until the fall of Mubarak. Um, so Anur refused to call its supporters out uh, to defend Morsi as the Tumarud campaign came to fruition at the end of June. Um, it's interesting to look at the, the, the position of Hezbollah as a sort of mirror image of that that the military played on uh, January 25th, 2011, and after the 11th of February, 2011. Hezbollah's position really was to jettison the Muslim Brotherhood to save the Islamist movement, much the same way that, um, that the army decided to jettison Mubarak in order to save the regime. And obviously, Hezbollah has aspirations to go on and lead that Islamist movement. So in the run-up to and the aftermath of the 30th of June, which was the big Tamarud protest, uh, divisions amongst activists were sharpening and reflecting those divisions that existed at that political level. Tamarud explicitly joined forces with the military, with its government, and the constitution process. And then at the, uh, the other level, you have the National Alliance for, in support of legitimacy, linking itself to Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. But I think what we're starting to see now is activism again coming to coalesce around opposition to the police state and the, yeah, and the military rule that sustains it. So in a sense, in activist terms, we're back to January 2011. Um, and the Muslim Brotherhood is belatedly trying to tap into this, which is supremely ironic due to its virtual neglect of these issues from January 2011 until June 2013. It may be that the Brotherhood is hoping for a 25th of January redux, finally realizing the futility of this regime game, given the depth of hostility within the state towards the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, but with most of, much, most of the Brotherhood's leadership in jail or in hiding, it may be that street activism 
will again require its own dynamics and direction, perhaps centering on the university campuses where we've seen a large uptick in protest activity. By pro-Morsi and non-pro-Morsi students. I think 25th of January Redux is improbable um, and at February 11th, 2011, Redux is virtually unimaginable. Um, Although Egypt is nothing if not unpredictable, so I'll probably regret saying both of these things. Um, I think even as many of those that were previously so resentful against the Muslim Brotherhood that they were willing to support the army in its coup, many of those people are waking up to the reality of a police state re-establishing itself, hunkering down for the long haul. Mass protests are very unlikely, I think, to dent the regime uh, in the short term for the following reasons. I've got seven of these. I'll say them all really fast. Very, very fast. You've got 30 seconds. The first one is they're ready for it. Uh, They've been practicing. The army and the police are one hand, as Assisi said at the 6th of October celebrations. So it's unlikely, I think, that we're going to see splits in the regime, which I think were essential to the fall of Mubarak. Secondly, the country is split down the middle. At least half of the population seems happy to support Sisi to stave off chaos, and the media is playing a very um, aggressive role in demonizing both activists and Islamists in pretty much equal measure. The economy, as we may hear more about, is probably going to do okay due to generous influx of Gulf aid, so people may feel better. Um, there's not going to be a lot of external pressure. I won't go into more to that. Um, but I think a key a dynamic is this one of domestic change. I think there will have to be a long-term process whereby the political uh, level and the grassroots activist level in some way converge such that the political class is channeling, is including, is representing um, revolutionary demands in a meaningful way. The Muslim Brotherhood was previously assumed to be the only structure capable of this, um, but for various reasons, in part due to its own authoritarian formation, its own habits developed under authoritarianism, proved inadequate to this. Um, But I will conclude by restating this thing that Egypt is an unpredictable place. So um, it could all be wrong. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much. And last but not least, Badawi. Well, John had already mentioned that it's very difficult, uh, after the fact, to construct... um, Uh, John had already explained in his uh, presentation that it's very difficult to explain um, uh, after the fact why it all happened, when it happened. And I'm given the even more difficult task of explaining why it didn't happen in some parts of the Arab world. But I'll try, and hopefully um, we could bring the two sides, the Saudi side and the um, uh, Egyptian uh, and other cases together. Since the Arab uprising, there was a lot of talk about the domino effect and how it's going to spread across the region. Obviously, it didn't. Um, And even when it started, it uh, had a mixed outcome. Uh, Yes, there was the success story in in terms of the immediate demand to uh, remove presidents from power, which happened in several countries, well, Egypt, Tunisia, and to a lesser extent after a prolonged period in Yemen. 
but uh, also uh, the peaceful side of all that action that took place uh, stumbled in the third country, which is Libya. Then it was faced with serious repression in Bahrain, and the ongoing uh, Syrian uh, crisis is, uh, is a good example of uh, how things could go wrong. But there is a region where it didn't happen, and most uh, analysts think that the Arab monarchies, and that is the two plus six, uh, Morocco and Jordan plus the six uh, GCC countries, it didn't happen, although these countries did see some kind of protest, but not on the scale or uh, in terms of demands similar to that that existed in other Arab countries, mainly Egypt and Tunisia. Now, since the 1990s, there was in political science uh, some political scientists who dedicated quite a lot of time to explain the resilience of the Arab monarchy. And Anderson, I think, was one of those who started the debate in the 1990s after the first and early wave of monarchies falling, such as the Egyptian monarchy in 1952, the Libyan uh, monarchy, and uh, others. Um, but... Uh, in this recent period, uh, over the last three years, we have a body of literature that tries to explain to us why these Arab uh, monarchies are resilient. And by the way, they're not the only countries that uh, things didn't happen uh, in them. For example, Algeria is, neither, uh, uh, is not a monarchy, but things didn't move there. One of those who explain it is Gregory Goes, and he gives us a couple of, uh, three reasons for the um, as, uh, resilience of these monarchies, including the main one uh, in terms of resources, size, etc., and that is Saudi Arabia. He says coalitions, that is the ability of the regime to, to uh, engage with society uh, and form coalitions with certain pressure groups, important groups, is one of the reasons. The second one is oil. And uh, quite, I mean, the six GCC countries are oil-producing countries. They're extremely rich. And uh, he goes back to the Rontier state model whereby uh, uh, the regime distributes some of the oil wealth in return for loyalty. And according to him, this is a good reason for these societies not to protest in the same way as uh, uh, in Egypt or, else, uh, or elsewhere in the region. And the two other poor, rather poor uh, monarchies, uh, monar Morocco and uh, Jordan, are also rentier states because they simply receive rent. They don't have oil, but they receive subsidies and rent from the outside, from the region, from the Gulf uh, countries, and also from outside, such as, for example, from Europe, in the case of Morocco, the USA to Jordan. And therefore, they can be counted as rentier states that are re recipients of this uh, 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 largesse, uh, uh, either from local resources or from outside. So this is one way of looking at this so-called resilient monarchy. The other one um, uh, proposed by, for example, somebody like uh, uh, Stéphane Lacroix, who says that uh, in Saudi Arabia, it is the religious element that actually prevented from this sort of collective action erupting, like it erupted in other countries. And therefore, he looks at the role of Islamists in Saudi Arabia, who did not call for demonstrations, did not call for the fall of the regime. In fact, they sided with the regime when there were calls 
to, uh, uh, to uh, demonstrate. And uh, uh, none of them had actually engaged with uh, uh, these calls for demonstrations in sort of February 2011, with the exception of uh, uh, calls on the Internet and one uh, call from a real group that uh, was uh, gradually being formed uh, called the Ummah Party which was in Saudi Arabia. And needless to say that immediately after they supported the demonstration, the nine founding members of the party ended up in prison. Um, so uh, this idea is floating that the Islamists uh, did not actually support demonstrations in Saudi Arabia, but neither did they in places like Egypt. We all know that the Islamists were actually not at the forefront of this protest movement that had actually swapped the, uh, the Arab world. Um, and finally, there are these cultural arguments and, uh, which look at legitimacy, uh, looks at how uh, dynastic rulers are embedded in society. And people uh, like Herb or Bromberg, Hudson, even uh, Lewis, uh, Bernard Lewis, they all focus on this sort of cultural uh, argument and uh, uh, look at uh, legitimacy of monarchies and some of them would even go as far as saying that Arabs are inclined to uh, 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 like uh, hereditary rule, uh, succession is planned and organized, and these are stable historical uh, forms of government that, are, uh, that Arabs are predisposed to accept. Uh, needless to say that this sort of essentialist, uh, culturalist argument doesn't actually work in uh, many situations. First, monarchy is not an ancient form of government that the Middle East had always had. Most of the monarchies I'm talking about uh, are 20th century creations that, uh, with the exception of the Moroccan one, perhaps, and the Omani one, who had more historical continuity than the others. But the rest of the monarchies in the Arab region, from Jordan to Saudi Arabia, are recent creations uh, that are actually put in place uh, within a colonial framework as they were seen as the best option uh, to, uh, to maintain the kind of this dependency that is prolonged until the present day. And therefore, there's no long, uh, long historical tradition of Arab monarchies in the region, with the exception of the two examples I gave. So why did it not happen? If these monarchies are not resilient by some kind of magical uh, uh, formula or reason, um, now I would think that um, these political scientists who theorize the resilience of these monarchies are looking at regimes and the strategies of these regimes in maintaining power. But if we look at the bottom up, uh, from the bottom up upward, then uh, let me take the example of Saudi Arabia and see why it didn't happen. I think we could, uh, the strategies of the monarchies are not that different from the strategies of the republics. In fact, uh, John also used the word jumlukiya. I mean, they borrow from each other. So the republics want to have tawrith, which is... Um, uh, uh, succession to the sons and uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, Mubarak and many others try to do that. So uh, in terms of coalitions, in terms of oil, Libya had oil yet it did have uh, uh, the, the, the uprising. And therefore we need to look at a specific case of Saudi Arabia to understand why it didn't happen there. Uh, my uh, uh, hypothesis is that Saudi Arabia suffers from an extreme form of fragmented publics. 
Um, and this fragmented public is very, very important to understand why uh, there was no collective action across uh, different parts of the country and across different classes, different social groups, different uh, ideological groups, simply because the publics in Saudi Arabia are fragmented as a result of historical and contemporary schisms. Some of them are the work of the regime itself, but also some of these schisms are the outcome of social, uh, historical, regional, and global trends. Uh, and here, um, it is, uh, we, we really need to move away from the idea that society is divided all the time. But there are certain uh, uh, outcomes of the involvement of Saudi Arabia in international capitalism and the development of an international capitalist economy that is uh, uh, used to be very centralized and then moved from this heavy centralization to liberalization and new liberal economies that produce certain schisms in Saudi society, which mitigated against this collective action um, and or any kind of uh, uh, solidarity across divides. So what are these divides in Saudi society? First one, let me look at the gender divide. Saudi, uh, obviously gender is, is uh, uh, persistent. It is, it is uh, obvious in every society. But the Saudi uh, case, there is a sort of assisted in a way, gender divide between men and women. But then even within uh, men, the category men and the category women, there are subdivisions. So to take the, the most important or maybe the most, uh, sorry, the most famous case of women driving in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is still the, la is the last country in the world where women are not allowed to drive. A simple example like that, you'd find that women are divided on the issue uh, between those who would like uh, uh, the, uh, gover the, the government to lift the ban and those who don't want the government to lift the ban. We could talk about why, but for, for just speed now. Uh, um, and the same thing among uh, men. You find that quite a lot of Saudis would like their women or women in general to be able to drive, but there are those who oppose the, the issue. The lift, lifting the ban on driving. So that's one of the divides. The second one is the secular or liberal uh, and uh, Islamist divide. Uh, obviously, we've seen this divide in every single country in the, uh, in, in, in the Arab world, and Egypt is actually probably a case in point. Uh, but it is a different kind of divide in Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, the divide between the Islamist and the uh, or secular liberal, although I'm, I'm very, very cautious in using these terms, but let's say between the Islamist and the non-Islamist for, for, for now, uh, is acute uh, simply because there are uh, forces that actually uh, 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 promote this kind of divide. Uh, and the government itself, through its media and uh, internet uh, and other forms of uh, um, uh, manipulation, tries to widen the gap between the two and actually tries to abort every attempt to cross or bridge that gap between them. And there are examples of this kind of bridge uh, that had been, uh, 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 that just simply disintegrate because of government intervention. Uh, now, even within the Islamist category, there are different groups, um, uh, and it is not uh, one, uh, one solid, coherent uh, social movement, political movement, or religious movement, if you like. 
Um, the background in Saudi Arabia is a, a traditional Salafi background uh, where until uh, uh, even now there is resistance to any kind of collective action. Uh, they, uh, the, the traditional official Salafi trend thinks that the uh, regime is legitimate. It may have some mistakes, but uh, these mistakes are not for the common people to correct. It is the uh, prerogative of a small circle of knowledgeable religious scholars to advise the government on how to correct uh, any kind of misgivings or uh, issues that they do not agree with. And therefore, from the, the historical religious context negates a shab, which was extremely important in, in the Egyptian case. So shab doesn't want or wants, it's not an issue, because they are described as the common people who cannot be trusted. And therefore, there is this sort of uh, uh, a monopoly of knowledge and advice to the ruler that uh, is uh, linked to the role of the religious scholars and their circle. So if this is the case, how could people want or what they want is really not relevant uh, in the equation? But this is just one dominant trend. There are other groups that have uh, engaged in political mobilization historically, um, although they didn't in the last uh, two, three years. Um, and they have uh, questioned this logic of, of uh, uh, negating what people want. Uh, but at the same time, they had been an arm of, of the government in many respects, uh, and there is a historical reason why some of the Islamists had been cooperating with the government because of the historical period, 1970s, 1960s, uh, they were used as a, a, a sort of a counter force against Arab nationalists, leftists, and secularists at the time. And um, in this particular context with oil, um, quite a lot of those people occupy important positions in government institutions, mainly religious institutions and in education. Um, and as a result, uh, within this sort of is Islamic context, there are these divisions. And this is also a contributing factor to the fragmentation of the Saudi public. Then there is the uh, other uh, 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 dividing line, and that is between the citizen and the non-citizen. And this came very clearly uh, uh, over the last two, three weeks. Uh, Saudi Arabia has around nine million foreign workers. Um, most, uh, quite a lot of them work in menial jobs, unskilled jobs, but quite of, the, uh, of, uh, of this nine million people are in managerial and leadership positions. But this division between, if you have a country with nine million foreigners and you have a strong tradition of separating them, literally, uh, sometimes physically separating them, and applying different uh, laws uh, to this category of the foreign worker, um, then you are going to have a divided, fragmented labor force, which is extremely important and conducive to perpetuating the fragmentation of Saudi society. Um, most recently, there was the category of the illegal immigrant, and this is a new construction. Um, uh, illegal immigrants are regarded as those who have entered the country uh, illegally or they had come to perform the pilgrimage, but then they stay behind and seek jobs, or people who have been actually traded 
uh, by Saudis in Saudi society. So uh, uh, if somebody brings a worker, uh, they have a visa for them to work, but then they could sell them this visa or allow this person to go and work for someone else um, and continue to pay a stipend for the visa that is held by a Saudi. So this is called the kafil system. Um, and therefore, you have a labor force uh, that is uh, fragmented and divided. But it is important for Saudis to feel that there is always someone else who is worse than they are. And this uh, last episode of um, uh, uh, rounding illegal immigrants with some serious clashes taking place and some deaths among Saudis and the immigrants, uh, who happen to be Ethiopian in this particular case, um, is important because it creates a sort of a momentary quasi-nationalism. So all Saudis are actually united against those illegal immigrants, um, estimated at over a million uh, people, who are uh, regularly deported. Over, well, they had started the deportation. And there's this sort of nationalism that is always the enemy within. These Ethiopian immigrants are here, and therefore they are taking the jobs, they're causing the crime, they uh, ruin our lives. And this kind of uh, quasi-nationalism is important to fragment uh, the population and create sort of momentary solidarities. Um, so having said that, uh, there are some uh, uh, signs of protest that have taken place. And I'm going to go over them very, very quickly because I, uh, there's no time. Uh, protests did take place. It didn't amount to collective action. And the first protest was uh, in February 2011, and that was in the eastern province where the majority of the Shia in Saudi Arabia live. But there, uh, and there are almost like more than uh, 18 deaths by now and hundreds of uh, uh, detained activists. But again, that uh, protest was actually important uh, to demonstrate to the mainstream Saudi society that there is this sort of other enemy uh, 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 within, uh, they called them agents of Iran, and because of sectarianism, yet another axis against which you can divide Saudi society, sectarianism with the Shia as uh, the, uh, the other. The other that is, whose loyalty is questioned, uh, their protests remained confined in the eastern province and they failed to re build any bridges with mainstream society and mainstream society, in fact, uh, supported the regime in denouncing the Shia as agitators. Um, in fact, uh, some Islamists even um, accused the Shia of causing greater repression uh, because they, they started the demonstrations first. Women, another category in Saudi Arabia, they've been uh, mobilizing uh, not only for driving but also for employment opportunities. Uh, groups of them, small-scale groups, would go to ministries or uh, the equivalent of a job center demanding the right to, uh, to work. Um, human rights activists, um, and this is extremely important. This is a new phenomenon that is emerged in Saudi Arabia due to global sort of civil society. They're linking up with Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and almost they had the experience of what I would call a startup civil society, a human rights organization in the form of the Saudi Civil and Political Rights Association. Uh, which was banned initially uh, uh, because the, even the law to regulate civil society is not ratified in Saudi Arabia, and uh, all the activists in the 
this uh, organization known as Hassam uh, had been detained and prison, long prison sentences passed uh, on them. For example, the, one of the main figures, Sleiman Rashudi, uh, 15 years in prison. Abdullah Hamid, uh, 11 years in prison. Uh, and and Gahtar, a final point, please. Uh, so all these human rights activists is a new phenomenon, but they have not been able to mobilize society. Uh, youth subversions uh, are uh, abundant, but these do not actually amount to uh, uh, protests. They remain isolated. And finally, there are those cyber actors, or what we call uh, digital activists, uh, who are extremely uh, active on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, and Saudi Arabia has the highest uh, uh, percentage of uh, use of these social media. I don't have time to go in, into detail into these uh, issues. Um, Yes, so let me just uh, conclude. I think what I have described, uh, the bottom-up approach to understanding why it didn't happen, plus the forms of protest that I briefly sketched, do not actually amount to uh, creating the conditions, uh, or structural or agency, uh, uh, of contentious collective action. I think in the particular case of Saudi Arabia and the rest of the monarchies, uh, maybe people will have to wait for the fifth wave of democratization. Thank you very much. Right, because, because our speakers uh, uh, refused to stick to 15 minutes and each took equally another five minutes each, we have 25 minutes of questions. So, or, so I'll, take, um, I'll take groups. Who wants to ask the first? Yes. Could, could you say who you are and, and end it with a question mark would be useful? Uh, yes. So, my name is Irene Lopez and I work with the Middle East Middle Eastern Program at Chelsea House. We saw during the revolutions Excellent, thank you. Okay. Uh, I will indeed. Okay. Uh, do you have a question as well? No. Nope. Who else has a question? Yes, sir, you. If you could shout as well, yes, that'd be. Uh, uh, Some of the discussion was uh, Dr. Ibrahim in Spain. And he said, Mubarak, uh, 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 the father, if he would to run, he will get 60 to 65 percent. Jamal Mubarak wouldn't get much. My question is, the liberal elite plus the army were divided about succession, not about the nature of political system. So in this case, they got what they wanted. Would you agree in this? In other words, the regime was not weak as you described, John. It was in a split with itself. And then it regrouped and produced itself. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim uh, then would agree with you in, in this case. Thank Excellent. You. Yeah, and you, sir. Final one in this round. Yeah, thank you. My name is Yusuf. I'm a Reuters journalist fellow from University of Oxford. Now, do you think Jordan has managed to present itself as a model stable country with a wise regime for 
uh, dealing with the internal uh, sort of like uprising by the Muslim Brotherhood and for dealing with the refugees, the Syrian refugees and the Iraqis and Palestinians before. Thank you. Excellent. So three questions. The continuing relevance of youth identity and the uprisings. Uh, the Egyptian regime was not weak. It was just split over succession. And Jordan as a wise regime in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. Uh, let's go in reverse order. John first. Um, well, I, um, at the, this question of youth, I mean, uh, there's, been, there's been some work. I haven't seen uh, particularly... Uh, ooh, this microphone... Take. Uh, I haven't seen, you know, the, the really good work, actually, on, on youth so far, deconstructing the category, thinking about what it means. Because you, you can speak about a kind of a new, a generational sociology in Egypt uh, and in some other of the countries, and it seems to matter as a sociological phenomenon, and it not for the first time. Uh, but then there's this question of the category of youth as a, as a political subject under the banners of which people mobilize. And that's another kind of question. It's not the same thing as the inert existence of a new generation. And, I, I, and my hypothesis is that this category of youth as a political actor emerges in particular circumstances uh, the crisis of authority, the, the, the generational sociology, but as well, you know, uh, daring uh, actions undertaken by, you know, because all youth don't undertake daring actions. Some youth are sitting at home saying, for goodness sake, come back from Tahrir Square because you're going to get shot. And that's very common. So, uh, but the, it's interesting. There's an article by Omnia Ashakri about the youth of Egypt in the late 1930s. Suddenly the youth appeared but actually at a moment of new mobilization, a new kind of crisis of authority in the late 30s where the WUFT had signed its treaty, etc., etc. And in fact, there were all these psychiatrists on hand to diagnose the youth as having some kind of disease because for some reason they were mobilizing against the established order. But it's an interesting article. Uh, on the political elite, were they divided before the succession? Yes, I mean, yes, sure, I, I would agree with... Um, there was a... I, I spoke to one senior intelligence official, what he said about Gamal Mubarak, he said, Rihu Ta'il, you know, he's like, nobody likes him, he's, what is it, uh, you know, he's, he's got, his whole attitude is, is slimy or something. And, uh, and, uh, and yes, sure, but, the, and those, but the question is, uh, what, what kinds of divisions at the top uh, can be then activated by unruly mobilization from below? because I don't necessarily accept that that division would have been activated in the way it was, at least, without the kind of uprising. Um, perhaps I'll leave the Jordan question uh, to my colleagues. Um, yeah, I'll just be very quick. Yeah, I think youth, youth is quite a problematic sort of um, category. Uh, it's quite unhelpful, and a bit, a bit like secularists and Islamists. There's so many differences within youth. I mean, if, if you look at the youth activists in, in Egypt now, comparing Tamarud with other groups, you can't really, you can't really make many generalizations. Um, it also doesn't necessarily link to age. Like it, there's a sort of stage of life element dimension to youth, which is also important. Um, my computer's just gone to sleep. Um, 
What was the other question? The succession? Yeah, yeah I mean, Divided, yeah. I, can, I, I kind of agree. There, there were sort of things, there were sort of murmurings that the military would not allow um, Gamal to succeed, but we just can't really know like, what it would have done. I mean, it, it's very, it makes sense to look back and see, well, yes, this, this uprising provided the perfect opportunity for them to step in and settle scores. I think it was more, more than, about more than just Gamal being unpopular, uh, amongst, you know, the the quote unquote electorate, it, it was uh, it was more about the the group within the regime that Gamal represented. Um, yeah. I might be really sneaky and dodge the Jordan question as well. I can't remember what it was. Which was both youth and Jordan for you. <laughs> Sorry, uh, could you remind me of the Jordan question? It was: Is it a uh, wise reformer in the midst of turbulent region? Isn't it? Well, Wasn't but, it? Basically, why why did the spring not come to Jordan? Is it, uh, well, it did. It did. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it did. <laughs> but also, I mean, one thing that I think—I mean, I'm not an expert on Jordan, but I think the, the fragmentation in Jordan is even more severe with uh, the Palestinian-Jordanian divide, and that must have something to do with uh, the. Uh, sort of the fact that nothing happened. Well, some things happened, but not what we are talking about in the case of Egypt. So that, that's extremely important if you have 60% or 70% of your population um, um, of one category and another one of another category. Uh, youth, again, uh, I think you know, youth is a social construction, uh, I, mean, I would say. Um, and it, it, there's quite a lot of research on uh, youth, but it is a construction. And the interesting thing is, uh, before the Arab Spring, there were quite a lot of um, research done on the radicalization of the youth of the Arab world, as if there is something that predisposes a young person to be radical. Um, but I think that kind of literature is, has a limited value, really. And suddenly, after 2010, 2011, we have these projects and research programs going on and on about the youth and the potential of the youth for mobilization. I think it's a social construction. And um, uh, you know, even in, in the Saudi case, you find people who are um, uh, using, for example, social media. They come from all sorts of age groups, and there's no nothing youthful about about uh, being uh, connected. Or um, um, so it's very difficult, I think. Uh, to talk about the youth, but obviously uh, you see them on the streets, they are there, uh, and um, I think it, it, it really depends on the social construction of the idea of, of, of a youth as a coherent group. Uh, they're, they're so diverse, they're cut by ethnicity, class, um, um, and all sorts of other uh, criteria. I once interviewed a pollster who had the uh, unlucky task of working for the King of Jordan and the running joke was he had the worst job in Amman because at the end of each month he used to have to go up to the palace and tell the king how unpopular he was. It must also uh, be kept in mind that Jordan is reputed to have one of the most effective Mahabharats in the region. But we'll get back to that. Any more? Yes, you, sir. Hi, my name is Omar, and I'm, I'm a postgraduate student at King's. My question is to do specifically with Saudi Arabia, um, because uh, I've read a statistic uh, sometime uh, in the past couple of months about, um, I think it was 75% of Saudi Arabia uh, is under the age of 30, or something, something like that, I'm not sure. Um, uh, also, 
uh, uh, I read something about the uh, underdeveloped infrastructure. Uh, so given, given the, uh, those imbalances uh, and given the uh, societal division you talked about, is Saudi Arabia heading towards its own uh, uh, oh, moment where uh, you know, tension is going to break into chaos? Okay. Yes. Uh, hi, I'm Harry. I'm a student. Um, I was just wondering, um, one of the most persuasive um, bits of research I've seen on the, the root cause of the Arab Spring is by Hernando de Soto on informality, particularly in the economy, um, and about how it leads to uh, poverty, a divide between the state and what the state's providing for its citizens, and also kind of not allowing people legal rights, and I wondered what the panel thought of that argument. Okay, and yeah. Uh, hi, my name's Leon. Um, I think I disagree with the use of the word revolution that always keeps getting used. I think it seems like a faulty premise. Uh, a revolution should, be a, should only be backed up by a collective manifesto, and I've never seen any collective manifesto. I think all we have is a waste of time. Right, that's three questions. Uh, is revolution coming to Saudi Arabia given its poor infrastructure and large young population? Inhumanity and lack of legal rights driving instability. And these aren't called revolutions, but I'll, I'll just uh, broaden out your question because I think it's fascinating, the lack of a unifying political project for the revolution, or for, sorry, for the uprisings. Madawi, do you want to go first? given that the first question is specifically on Saudi. Okay. I, I think you know, the, the whole region has a young population. Um, uh, uh, and the infrastructure is uh, pretty uh, appalling in many other countries. But these don't... I mean, you people have grievances. Uh, you, you can even, I would add... I mean, I could give you a list of grievances. Unemployment figures are appalling in, in Saudi Arabia. But these conditions, these grievances uh, by themselves don't make revolutions. <laughs> uh, um, so there are other factors, I think. Uh, now, let me just comment on the idea of a revolution. I think um, when we talk about the, what happened, let's not call it, let's not name it, what happened in the Arab world, whatever you call it, the Arab Spring, uh, uprisings, revolution, etc., you're giving it a name and you're uh, endowing it with meaning so that you try to comprehend it. And revolution is one of the words that people have used. But it's interesting how these uh, words reflect uh, you know, a certain kind of uh, uh, normative framework. So the Arab Spring, quite a lot of people said that the use of the Arab Spring is a very orientalist way of depicting, describing what happened. I think. Myself, I would call them Arab uprisings um, because it, it just tends to be more neutral. But again, when we use revolution and you're saying there is no manifesto, uh, but you are referring to a model that you think is the model of a revolution. Basically, 20th century, the last sort of phase of revolutions, um, whether we're talking about the Russian Revolution or maybe Prague Spring, etc. So your frame of mind, your reference point is European history. And what we are seeing here is a phenomena that we haven't seen before. Um, 
um, you know, no revolution uh, had uh, made use of Twitter or Facebook, etc. We are also seeing leaderless revolution. Uh, we are seeing groups of people who would emerge. Uh, we've never heard of them before, like in Wa'el Ghnaim or some of the bloggers, etc. So we are witnessing something, a case study here, that we, we try to understand it in its own term rather than calling on um, European history, for example, and, and look for a, a manifesto of a revolution. There were slogans, but they weren't what you would probably call um, um, you know, a manifesto. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I, think it's <clears throat> I think I'm slowly kind of stopping using the word revolution when I talk about Egypt. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult because when you, when you talk about something, you're in, you are in some small way influencing what's happening. So if you, if you tell lots of people who believe that they're involved in a revolution and see themselves as in a revolutionary situation that, no, 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 this is not a revolution, that is kind of, a, there's a sort of a normative um, consequence to that. Um, at the same time, you have to look at what's actually changing and what, and if you, and you can, you, there are cynical uses of, of of the word revolution. If, the, if, the, if a military general says we've had a revolution, you, you have to be a little bit suspicious <laughs> of what's happening. And, mm. and the Middle East has a long history of that, of people calling things revolutions, which were not. They're like re- reorganizations of, of offices and, and roles and within regimes. Um, I think the Saudi question is very, very interesting. I mean, I, I do wonder like, what's going to happen when Saudi Arabia can't do the kind of things that it does with its money. And at some point, this will happen <laughs> when, Saudi, when the Saudis cannot, uh, a few days after a coup takes place, deposit several billion dollars uh, in the Egyptian, Egyptian National Bank. When they can't do that, when these economies um, cannot be propped up in this way, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting, to say the least. Mm. Sure. Mm. Um, so, Anando de Soto has uh, appeared uh, doing some research on the Arab world and he has this thesis that is that really the panacea for solving the world's problems and floating all boats and is to allow the poor to work in the integrate into the wonderful global market by acquiring property rights and he has this thesis already it's been wonderfully completely deconstructed by someone called Timothy Mitchell in a fabulous article that I recommend you google but he, so he comes to the Middle East already with this idea, and he says against all the evidence that Mohammed Bouazizi, what he really wanted was property rights, even though the subjective evidence for that is absolutely minimal. It's not based on a significant research program, and it represents a complete imposition of a completely pre-existing framework, his panacea for solving the problems of the world, on, onto a, a, a man who, who burnt himself, it, because he was uh, you know, engaged in survivalist small business. He was trying to provide for his family. Uh, reportedly, he was humiliated. He was facing the corruption and violence of the police. He was facing the indifference of the governorates. He never said, and nobody around him ever said, and none of the Tunisians who mobilized around him said, what we really want is property rights. 
And so uh, read uh, Amin Alel's uh, article on the informal networks involved in mobilization in Tunisia, just published in the Bainin and Verel volume, second edition. That's really good on what's happening in Tunisia. Or read Hela Yousafi, or, but, but yeah, Hernando de Soto, I, I, I reject that thesis. On, I, I think what happened in, in the Arab uprisings was revolutionary, but uh, I don't think it was a completed revolution. In fact, it encountered a very violent counter-revolution, which in many cases overwhelmed it. But so um, I think it was revolutionary, um, uh, and, and I think there is a, there is a kind of a, a manifesto, in a sense, like um, in the sense that, that Ali Aragel means when he writes in Jadalia, where he says, this is a revolution on the meaning of a revolution, which has something to do with horizontalism, direct democracy, uh, the, the, a new deliberative form of organizing, which is not only a mode of political decision-making, but also spills into social and economic domains. So I think, uh, I, I think there is actually something quite exciting that's going on, and that's partly why it was so demonstratively interesting in Reykjavik, in Nashville, in London, in Madrid, and now and then in Taksim and then in Brazil. This is why it had a kind of a, a significance well beyond the Arab world. So I think that was uh, revolutionary, uh, but, uh, I, but absolutely not. The revolution is not complete by any means, and perhaps... You know, remember in France in 1789 there was a Bourbon restoration in 1815. There was a counter-revolution, uh, and uh, on and on. I mean, France then had its commune in 1870. I mean, these things they take a long time to to work themselves out. Right, we're rapidly running out of time, but I'll take one final round of questions. Uh, you uh, first, and then the person, uh, and then the woman there, and then the person just behind. Hi, um, you mentioned uh, about the illegal immigrants in Saudi Arabia and you also mentioned how the Saudi society was um, quite fragmented. Having lived in Saudi Arabia for over 10 years, I might go even further and say there is a sort of class system in Saudi Arabia. Do you think that is a do you, for my question is, would you agree with that, A and B, do you think that's a possible reason why there would be no revolution in Saudi Arabia? Because to put it bluntly, the Saudis are at the top of the pyramid. Hi, uh, my name is Amr Mregdi. I'm Egyptian, but my question is on Saudi Arabia. And uh, it's for you all, of course, but especially for Professor Madawi. Uh, I didn't really hear from you on the division inside the Saudi regime. And actually, there was an article in The Guardian like uh, a couple of weeks ago on this, uh, the division between two wings, the uh, wing represented by the intelligence, Prince Bandar and uh, Magrin, and the other uh, wing which is maybe we can call it a reformist and it inter uh, like objects to the foreign policy of Saudi Arabia and it wants more reform and also uh, like simple facts like that uh, only 14 brothers left out from 37, uh, 36 brothers uh, from for the Prince Abdelaziz and uh, the youngest of them is 66 years old so what's your input? That's good and Hi, I'm a student at King's College War Studies Department. Uh, my question was, I've noticed that most of your explanations for the Arab Spring were limited to internal explanations. How would you judge the role of Iran uh, and other external actors in the Arab Spring? Excellent. And the final question. 
Oh, yes. Um, what is the role of the Gulf, Saudi, and America? Excellent. So we have Saudi Arabia as a class system. Um, the divisions within the Saudi regime between Prince Bandar on one side and the intelligence uh, and then the reformists on the other. The role of Iran, hidden hand or otherwise, and then Gulf and US money. So who wants to start? John, you can start. Uh, well, the, the pluralistic momentum in Iran in the 1990s, as Arshin uh, 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 Adib Mogadam called it, uh, has this, uh, this uh, uh, some of the languages, practices, and repertoires of, uh, uh, of uh, that, that, that you can see you can see them in some respects in elements of the the contention that happens in the Arab Spring, and especially then in, in the Green Movement in Iran in two, 2009. Precisely this thing I mentioned, this idea about direct, deliberative democracy, horizontalism, that's the kind of thing that's also present in the repertoires of contention in Iran in the late 2000s. And so that, that you know, there may be some interesting kinds of homologies, connections, of course, the, the Iranian regime claimed that, oh, yes, this is our effect in the region. You know, nonsense, not from the regime, not from the, the regime, but there are some possible borrowings, demonstration effects. We, you know, I think that would be an interesting research project. Uh, as for Gulf and, and, and Saudi money, well, I understand it, it, it was promised to the, the military uh, in Egypt in, as of July 2013, uh, in order to, um, as, a, as a part of the counter-revolution, as a part of putting this revolutionary process back in its box. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Iranian influence is very important in Syria, not as important elsewhere. Um, I think Gulf money probably becoming more significant compared to American money, mm. but um, hard to disentangle the two. Well, yes, obviously, I mean, there is a class system emerging, and this is not a new phenomenon. It's been um, since the uh, 70s. But I would say that the people who are Saudis are not actually at the top. It's the royal family that is at the top. So, uh, and you would be surprised um, if you look at statistics of uh, poverty in Saudi Arabia and how many uh, uh, a disenfranchised class of uh, people uh, in the peripheral areas and some among the urban poor. Um, what was interesting in the, um, uh, the uh, sort of rounding up of the illegal immigrants in one area of Riyadh, uh, which had been a long time abandoned by the local inhabitants, but even now um, you find that Saudis are living there with the illegal immigrants um, in, in this particular area, which means that you know, not everybody is actually as comfortable as um, uh, the, the propaganda wants us to believe. The inside divisions among the, I didn't talk about that, uh, but um, I think um, you know, everybody speculates about these uh, factions within the royal family. And I've, I've moved beyond that a long time ago. In 2005, I wrote an article about circles of power in Saudi Arabia. And it is, I think, better to look at the Saudi royal succession uh, model uh, in terms of um, uh, royal circles rather than two factions. There are multiple circles of power within the royal family. And the idea that you are going to have a central absolute monarch at the top is, is gone after the death of King Fahd. 
Um, so King Abdullah was actually trying to manage these circles, and he himself was one of the circles, and there are other powerful circles in the royal family. So uh, uh, I don't want to go into details, but there are like th three or four circles, um, and along these circles there are a couple of princes and even a wider circle. And therefore, the, the kingdom itself is no longer an absolute monarchy. It's almost like a fiefdom of three or four of royal circles. Uh, and for that to continue, they need a weak king who is able to keep the facade of, of unity and good for public consumption and international consumption. Uh, but the real power is actually uh, in the hands of a number of other princes. So that's on the... Uh, the role of the region, yes, external actors, it's extremely interesting. Uh, I didn't uh, go into what Saudis have done to, the, um, uh, to Egypt or uh, elsewhere, uh, Bahrain, Yemen, etc. But I think there are three patterns uh, that are Im extremely important, and they are related to what Saudi Arabia has been doing. One of them is to uh, act as a pure counter-revolutionary force, and they did that in Bahrain through direct military intervention, and through subsidies in Egypt in order to topple the Islamist government of, of Egypt that lasted for a year. The other one is to contain the outcome. So th they did that in Yemen, uh, where they couldn't intervene directly in a military way. Yemen is too complex, and militarily they, the Saudis wouldn't be able to do that. It's not a small island like Bahrain. But what they did is they contained the outcome, micromanaged the uh, 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 Yemeni accord with, with the Gulf um, cover uh, and ensured that uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh has got immunity. He goes, but his, uh, the, the regime is intact. And the final one, which is surprising, is the Saudi Arabia acting as a pro-revolutionary force in Syria and promoting that they want Syrian uh, democracy for Syria, which is absolute sort of rhetoric. Uh, it's also like uh, a contradiction. Uh, and this is purely done for the uh, regional power struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So um, there are three sort of outcomes of the Saudi involvement uh, in the Arab Spring. Excellent. I'm sorry to cut this off, but we need to vacate the room five minutes ago. But I, the, 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 um, the upside of this is as you walk out of the door, uh, on the table to your right, there are flyers for the book edited by Fawaz Jurgis called The New Middle East, Protest and Revolution in the Arab World. And two of the members of the platform have got longer pieces in it, and it's going to be reduced, I think, by 20%. So don't forget to pick up a flyer. And that's all that's left to me is the rather delightful task of uh, asking you to join me in thanking our three excellent speakers. <laughs>